I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rare Extra. This spring, RareX will kick off Accelerate Rare, a rare disease open science data challenge. For this inaugural challenge, researchers and data scientists will work in a collaborative and competitive environment to use patient-provided data to solve research questions focused on rare pediatric neurodevelopmental diseases. More than 44 rare disease communities represented by more than 70 patient advocacy groups are participating in the challenge, and patients and their families affected by these conditions are actively loading their health data to the RareX data platform to enable researchers to make discoveries. We spoke about the Open Science Data Challenge with Senior Director of Scientific Programs for RareX, Carmen Trupek, Chief Scientific Officer of the Children's Tumor Foundation, Salvatore La Rosa, and Section Head of Medical Informatics for Genentech, Andrew Nguyen. The three discussed open science challenges, how they work, and what RareX hopes to accomplish through this event. Carmen, Andy, Salvo, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're going to talk about Accelerate Rare, RareX's Open Science Data Challenge, how it's bringing together researchers and data scientists, and how this is signaling a new phase for the RareX data platform as researchers are already using it to advance their understanding of rare diseases. Carmen, perhaps we can start with the challenge. What is an Open Science Data Challenge? Sure, it's probably a great place to start. I think it's helpful to first talk about open science. Um, So the principles of open science really state that research data should be made available for others to use and to reuse. And we know that this is important broadly for the advancement of disease understanding and therapeutic development throughout healthcare, but it truly is critical in rare diseases where patient numbers are very small and data is scarce. So, you know, we at RareX truly believe that data has value when it is discoverable and shared and used. And and that's really central to everything that we're doing in making that data available on an open science platform. So this challenge is really an extension of that and a way to accelerate the use of that data. So by creating a challenge environment with various incentives for different types of participants, Um, we believe we can dramatically increase the number of researchers and data scientists who are coming and looking at and using these data sets. The data challenge is focusing on neurodevelopmental diseases this year. Why is that? Uh, It's really for two reasons. One is that um, the RareX platform just launched um, not even a year and a half ago, and the initial disease communities that joined us and kind of took that plunge with us first um, really are those neurodevelopmental disorders. So those uh, groups are the ones that we have the most data on to date. Um, Also, the way that we select and implement uh, validated patient-reported outcome measures to be implemented on our platform is truly intended for cross-disorder research. 
So this is an opportunity to bring forward a group of disorders with some overlapping symptoms, some overlapping um, sort of questions that they're all answering together and, um, and, you know, create a space for that to be used together. How does the, the data challenge actually work? Well, we are working with um, a platform partner. And so we've chosen to work with Dream Challenge through Sage Bio Networks. So they are uh, also a nonprofit. They will create, they will work with us to create the challenge questions. They will create a dedicated workspace. And together, we will have a support team uh, that has both technical support and patient advocacy representation to answer questions along the way and, and support teams. And then we'll work with both the Dream Challenge um, platform and with a couple of external partners to publicize the event leading up to it, reaching well over 10,000 researchers and data scientists. And who can participate in the challenge? And what do they have to do to participate? Well, anyone can participate, really. Um, but we are setting up three different challenge questions as part of, of the Open Science Data Challenge. And each of those is really geared to a different type of researcher or scientist. So we know that in some of these very rare disorders on our platform, there is very little published about the progression of the disease, about the varying symptoms of the disease and the um, prevalence of those symptoms. So that's one category is really identifying some previously unrecognized symptoms and, uh, and, and looking at that data in comparison to what's currently known. And that's, you know, a certain type of researcher who would be most interested in that. And, and maybe somebody who's done kind of genotype, phenotype work before and is very interested in this particular group of rare diseases. Um, but one of the other challenge questions will be related to creating machine learning algorithms to predict disease diagnosis based on the diagnostic journey that is documented by these families. And, and so, you know, that might really be more of a data scientist who becomes more interested in, in that particular question. Um, and then I'll just say, finally, the, the third one is, is can we really advance therapeutic hypotheses given this data. So, you know, in that one, what we really anticipate is that we know there are researchers out there already working on this group of disorders and, and doing really solid research, but they have very little clinical data that they can lean on. So can they use some of our data to advance their hypotheses, to challenge their hypotheses, um, and we believe that, and we've already gotten some, some feedback about this, that some research, researchers will be very interested in that because there's some grant funding that's been set aside um, for the winners of that. And what's the ultimate goal here in doing this? Well, ultimately, our goal is always to advance disease understanding and meaningful therapeutic research for rare diseases. Um, so... Anything that falls under that kind of broad category, I would say, is is what we're hoping for. 
I will say, I think we have reasonable expectations. You know, we don't expect the patient reported data we've collected in just over a year to generate some blockbuster therapeutic idea overnight. Um, but we do believe that patient reported data is powerful and can be used to fuel and to test hypotheses. So we're really excited to just, you know, advance the understanding of these very rare disorders to support the researchers working in these disorders and, um, and hopefully to pair some grant funding with really meaningful ideas. Let's bring Salvo in here. Salvo, you've had some experience with science challenges. CTF hosts an annual hackathon. Is there a difference between a hackathon and an open science data challenge? Hi, Danny. First of all, it's great to be here. And I think, uh, apart from the name that is different, uh, there are more similarities than differences. Actually, you can call these two events two different ways, but they are basically the same thing. Um, As you said, we've been hosting annual hackathons for the last four years. And and for us, uh, the objective uh, changed through the years. Um, there are two very important aspects that we we care about the hackathon. One is the the way that we can ac- actually reach out of our current community of researchers and tap into, let's say, those citizen scientists or out of the field uh, professionals and you know researchers in computational and other disciplines that are normally not connected with healthcare and bring in uh, talent that can actually work on on a challenge that is somehow stimulating. Um, So there is this outreach element that allow us to expand our normal capacity of, of research. And this is very, very important in the rare disease space because we all suffer from very few labs that have uh, the expertise and capabilities. So there's always a challenge for us to uh, bring new blood into the field. The other is, as Carmen said before, is to incentivize open science. And the double effect is, first of all, for those who already share data, showing the value that sharing data can bring to new insights and can bring to new discoveries. And the second is that using this data, you can actually gain um, from being open. Basically, you almost leave your, your tools on a table that someone else can play with. So you get recognized and we hope this will help the, the, the future discoveries and also collaborations because if there is interesting results, maybe <clears throat> the new insight, the secondary analysis on that data sets can bring in a collaboration for the original, the originator of that data set. So this, is a, um, this was the start uh, of what we wanted. And I think there is no difference between the two modules. CTF started um, years ago with open science in basically 2014. Um, and then we built in 2018 our data portal. That is, you can actually Google it. It's nfdataportal.org. 
And it's the idea was to um, have data in a centralized way for those collaboration projects where you know different members from different labs can have a centralized repository. Now, if you fast forward four years, we have um, open science policies for all our grants. So every grants we give out has a digitalized page where they basically deposit their data. And this really is very important also looking at next January when the NIH will ask every grantee that uh, they fund to have a data sharing plan and uh, a repository for their data. You, you mentioned this is important, particularly in the area of rare diseases. What can these open science challenges achieve? And can you point to some examples from the Children Tumors Foundation? Yeah, it's very interesting. They're very diverse. And I think the, everything is into how you formulate your challenges question. Um, in the past, our approach was we don't have a lot of data and we want to attract as many people as possible. So we really had, let's say, a challenge which was focused on data, almost like uh, the open science data challenge that RareX is doing. Plus, we had, okay, if you have any idea or you think you can create a mobile app or web application that can help patients, researchers, clinicians, please, you know, submit and, and see if this can actually um, win. Well, I can tell you that the different, the, the two type of submissions were 50-50. So we had, for instance, 10 submissions for data analysis and secondary analysis of existing data sets. And we had another 10 mobile app or web applications that were created. And we did this for about two years. But then the real value, um, I think, of one or two projects that really stood out um, were coming from the, the secondary data analysis, not from the mobile app that allow patients to you know, have a better handle on their medication or handle their medical appointment or very, very... Um, um, ambitious programs that, you know, will try to integrate electronic health records <laughs> uh, on, on paper or, let's say, on the concept. But then, you know, of course, the um, put in action of, of this um, mobile app are very, very complex. So we saw the value there. And I can give you some example of, of projects, interesting projects. So when you launch this type of things, um, you have, as I said, you know, diverse industries that participate. We had a team uh, that was an expert in video game, and this guy uh, came up using a video game, a 3D graphics algorithm that could actually use your uh, iPhone camera to monitor and make a volumetric analysis of skin lesions. This is a huge problem for neurofibromatosis patients, especially for their cutaneous neurofibromas, and measuring the volume of, of these lesions and monitoring outside, let's say, of you know um, an hospital environment where you can actually have more measurements and not like data points scattered every three or six months is very, very powerful. Another team, for instance, looked at synthetic, synthetic MRI data as you know, there are no many patients, and sometimes you want to create an algorithm with AI, and there is no enough scans or you know MRI data that is available to train an algorithm. So this team actually created a way 
to um, create synthetic MRIs that were exactly you know, customizable with the type of tumors and the type of indications. Um, and you can create an infinite number of this and maybe train an algorithm that then will recognize real ones. Uh, interesting ideas. Maybe we can, we can have a deeper discussion on that. And, and another team that came, for instance, from American Airlines. We had a champions at American Airlines that launched and made sure that, you know, everybody there knew about this challenge. And we had like a group of um, machine learning experts that joined the challenge last year. And they created um, a graph neural network based gene clustering and interpretable classification for NF patients. So very, very advanced and complex machine learning uh, thing applied to genomic data that is not the real you know, data that this industry works with. Your organization has done four of these. What have you learned in terms of maximizing the results from doing these? Yeah, the, the learning is that now we know exactly what we want from these events. And it's more than, let's say, spreading the word and attracting as many researchers and putting NF out there. Uh, what we want is to leverage the power of data into new insights for the disease. So having an approach like you know, the dream challenge, I think is the right, at least for me, is the right approach. Um, I think it's always very um, important to, to have so many participants, but then the solutions and those groups that submit a full uh, solution to the challenge are very, very few. So out of 500 participants that we normally have uh, as registrants, probably a handful of 60 are very, very active participants and submit. So having those secondary analysis and work on data rather than you know, creating open-ended solutions like, um, you know, web app or anything that they came up with. Um, that's where I think the value of this is. And the more the, the scientific community is behind this, like involved as mentors and judges and even, you know, their postdoc, they take the challenges. There is then the, the more the value uh, where, you know, this intersecate with the, research community. Given that, has the organization's approach to open science evolved over time? I would say has evolved because now we have a lot more data. Uh, there is always a challenge that we do where we're trying to um, prepare diverse data sets and have more of these data sets available. And the more it's available and there is a preparation for the data set, the better are the solutions that are out there. Um, it's a small period of time. People are engaged only for two, three, four weeks. And it's very, very difficult to keep that momentum going after the event is done. So if there is very interesting results, sometimes it's, it's difficult to, even with, you know, incubations um, awards or any of those is, is very, very difficult to move it forward. But I think the approach to open science has changed because now everybody knows that this is doable. They can find data and um, they're really looking for it. 
Andy, you're someone who lives in the world of informatics. We've been watching a transformation of biomedical research and how data is being used. How is the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning transforming what's possible and how research is approached today? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> I think there's a couple layers to that. Like on, on the one hand, the the focus on AI and machine learning and whatnot is really driving just so much more interest and focus into how do we work with data? How do we work with large amounts of data? And I think that rising tide is going to raise all ships in kind of all industries. So whatever advances we see in finance and marketing and other areas of machine learning, or even um, computer vision, for example, within self-driving cars, can some of that then be brought back into healthcare where we're processing healthcare data and analyzing it in some way? You know, on the, the health system side, we've been working with data you know, for as long as we've had electronic health records, CT scanners, digitized x-rays and whatnot. And I think what's starting to change now is how do we approach all of the amount of data that's coming in and to me, and then kind of to touch on an earlier point, like I really like that this is called an open science data challenge and not just a hackathon, even though I also use the term somewhat interchangeably, is even if your machine learning model fails, you, know, you set out, you want to build a predictive algorithm and it just doesn't perform as well as you wanted it to. It may not perform better than the gold standard or it just doesn't perform well at all. I think there's still a huge opportunity to learn something about the data. And that's where the science comes in. And to me, whether it's data science, whether it's open science, there's still a scientific component of why did my model fail? And did it fail? Because I'm assuming there's one disease when it's really two separate diseases that look very similar, but the data is somehow keying into this. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there to really change fundamentally how we look at our data by using a lot of these tools and technologies that are coming out with the intense focus on AI and machine learning. You mentioned large data sets, which I guess is a bit of a relative term. I think there's a tendency to think about AI and its use around big data, but what's the case for leveraging this technology for smaller data sets from rare disease communities? I think that's a really good point. Everything's always relative. And when I think about big data, just given my own focus on the area, my mind typically goes right to the variety of data and not necessarily the volume in terms of bits or bytes. And I think as we as we look at the increase um, focus on AI and machine learning, and we're starting to see more and more data sets come together, we, we oftentimes see these really large data sets, but when you're looking for a particular signal, right, you're working on a particular problem, the subset of the data that you're interested in may be a lot smaller. And I think other, other industries, other folks are starting to realize this as well. And that perspective and that idea that you know your data lake, so to speak, may be very wide, but it's only an inch deep. How do we key into those patients in those small communities and cohorts of patients that we're really looking to help? And in this case, especially with rare diseases, um, you know, any one data set may not actually have a lot of patients in there. And as we start looking across different data sets, how do we bring these different data sets together? How do we harmonize and, and look across um, different sources of data, I think that is going to help us a lot in the rare disease space. How important is data standardization and harmonization for this approach to be effective? And how enabling is the approach to patient reported data collections that RareX has taken? So this is an excellent question. And basically what I've been working for the past 10, 15 years or so to try to answer 
is I, I, to me, data standardization and harmonization is one of the key things that we need to be focusing on when it comes to healthcare data, especially when it comes from the real world, it comes and is generated during the delivery of patient care. And as, as we even started this conversation today, you know, what's the difference between hackathon and open science data challenge? And we already talked through how they're very similar or maybe they're the same thing within medicine and, and the delivery of healthcare. There's a lot of ways to say the same thing. And what I call, you know, non-small cell lung cancer in one data set may just be NSCLC in another, or we're talking about a genetic mutation in one case, and then we're naming the disease in another. I think these variations across data sets can make it very challenging for us. And I know there's a lot of focus right now on federated access to data, federated learning, federated analytics. And I think that is going to highlight this challenge even more that as we look across different sources of data and we're trying to harmonize that data, how, do we, how can we tell the difference between a poorly performing model because there's simply no signal to be found or it's performing poorly simply because we haven't harmonized the data well enough and how can we start surfacing some of those issues? And as a patient, right, as, as I go through kind of my journey, I might go to one provider, I go to another one, I go to another one, and especially in the rare disease space where you're trying to find out what's even wrong in the first place, you might go to five or 10 different places and your data gets spread across all these different locations. And I think what RareX is doing is a really interesting approach to tackle this problem, which is at the end of the day, all of the research we're trying to do is about a patient's trajectory through their disease state, whatever that might be. And that patient goes from one source to another and their data gets spread everywhere. But the one common point in all of this is the patient. So if we can work with the patient and center it around the patient and collect data from that patient, we're able to mitigate some of the challenges when it comes to standardization and harmonization, especially in rare diseases. We talked about AI and machine learning, but one of the other technologies that's expanding the utility of health data is natural language processing. How is this changing what's possible? And are you seeing this used in any unexpected ways? Yeah, so NLP, um, you know, talking about this whole standardization harmonization challenge kind of becomes an area of, of focus as well, where so much of the data being generated on patients today is in free text, whether it's a, a provider or a clinician writing a note down an electronic health record, or increasingly as patients are taking notes as they talk to their care teams and whatnot, there's a lot of text out there and how do we leverage that? So our go-to solution is to use something like natural language processing and NLP actually means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It could be that we're creating a tool to um, extract clinical concepts of interest, right? So that as we go through uh, either patient reported data, electronic health record data, whatever else it might be, and we're able to say, oh, the patient's talking about this particular disease, even if they use slightly different words. And how do we start pulling that together? Um, and then we also see sort of solutions where you're trying to process and extract insight directly from the text. And one area that I've seen is um, going to electronic health record and actually pulling out a patient's smoking status, for example, and just being able to say exactly how many pack years or, or whatnot that we can extract from that data. But what's interesting to me about this is there's the language aspect of it. And oftentimes that comes in the form of written text. But as we see mobile devices and other ways that people are interacting kind of continue to grow, I think one interesting area for me is voice and speech recognition. 
And so, you know, even walking around now, I see people talking to their phones to write text messages more than anything else. So it still ends up as text when it's inside the system. But can we actually go to that voice and the speech pattern itself? And can we start to diagnose or get a better sense of a patient's clinical status? And I know one area of focus for for many um, scientists and researchers is to look at Parkinson's or Huntington's or other neuro disorders where it might actually show up in your speech if we can analyze the raw speech signal itself and not just the words that you're saying. Carmen, this is early days for the RareX platform, but what types of data are on it today? Yeah, that's right. Um, it is kind of early days. Today, what we have on there primarily falls under what I would call patient-reported and patient-provided data. So uh, patients, participants, I guess, um, really provide information about their diagnosis, their symptoms, their, diagno their diagnostic journey, uh, and that includes prior diagnoses that may have you know, that may now turn out to be misdiagnoses along what we all know to be often a very long and convoluted diagnostic odyssey for patients. So that information will be on there, some medication history. And then we um, also will have, we're in the process of, of obtaining this data, uh, genetic data that will be provided by patients in the form of their genetic test results and curated um, by a, a very small team on our side doing that in a, in a very uh, consistent manner to ensure that we're really collecting data out of those reports in a, in a discrete way, you know, in discrete data elements that enables research. Um, and then we also have validated patient reported outcome data. So that uh, those measures are ones that we choose through a multi-stakeholder expert working group in particular disease areas and determine, you know, what are the patient reported outcome measures traditionally used in clinic, in a clinical setting, often in a natural history study or in a clinical trial, um, but really are patient reported measures that are just being asked and um, and written down uh, by a provider that we can instead do remotely. And so we have um, gone through a very rigorous process to identify the most critical of those in this uh, group of rare disorders and then license and implement those on the platform. In preparation for the Open Science Data Challenge, there'll be a push to get patients and their families to engage in the RareX platform. How will that work? Well, that's already working. We're, we're um, working very closely with the patient communities that are on board our platform to, you know, kind of get out the messaging about why this data is important. I think that, you know, one thing that RareX is very passionate about is that we don't collect data for the sake of collecting data and leaving it in a static registry. We are using this data. And so what what we've seen is that when you really engage with patient communities and ensure that they understand how the data is being used and what is the opportunity for their voice and their journey to really help guide the science and the research, they're much more willing to sit down and take the time 
away from their families, especially when they often have a child with special needs, that time is really precious, but to take the time to do this. And so, you know, we're doing lots of, um, lots of education, some of it sort of broad education and some of it, you know, really small group conversations in some of these rare disease communities uh, so that they really feel like part of the process because they are. As part of the challenge, participating patient communities are being asked to reply to survey questions. What types of information is RareX seeking as part of this challenge? Well, the primary data set is that data that I described, right? So that patient reported and patient provided data. Um, But we are also uh, working with a number of different potential partners on bringing in external data sets that overlap in some of these rare disease areas. So for example, we have an ongoing collaboration with Children's Hospital of Colorado where they are doing what I would call a basket style natural history study in a group of rare disorders of which uh, a number of those disorders are actively collecting data on the RareX platform today. So getting some of that data, uh, including like some neuropsych assessments that are done in clinic, including some laboratory values that are obtained in clinic in those same really rare disease communities is very powerful. We're also talking to a couple of partners about getting in uh, some limited uh, EMR data, some claims data. So, you know, like Salvo said, you know, over time, this is going to grow and we'll have more data. This is kind of the start. So we're in a little bit of a race to see just how much great external data we can get in in time for this first challenge. But this really is just our first challenge and there will be many more. What does RareX plan to do with the various submissions and outcomes from the data challenge? Is there a plan after the challenge? Will findings be shared in any way? Will they form the basis for ongoing research? Yeah. So I think there's really two answers to that. One is that we have a strong commitment to truly be partners to the patient communities who are collecting data on our platform. And that means that we also will be communicating the results of the challenge to them. So there will be blog posts, there will be webinars directly to the patient communities um, so that they know what happened. You know, what were the types of submissions that we received? Who won and why? What is that fueling moving forward? So that's part of what we will do after the challenge um, concludes. The other thing, and and I alluded to this before, we... We have generous support of uh, a couple of different um, partners in this endeavor, but one of them, the RTW Charitable Foundation, has quite generously set aside grant funding for uh, up to three submissions that have real opportunity to fuel compelling therapeutic hypotheses and test them in a lab. And... So what they will do is um, actually somebody from the RTW Charitable Foundation, their chief scientific officer, is going to um, be one of our judges to help judge those entries. And, you know, if a, a research idea is really compelling and something that they would just fund right away, that group will, you know, just receive a grant at that time. If 
if it's kind of not far enough along, if that research idea is, is interesting and it rose to the top, it's not quite far enough along to really fund a grant today, they're actually going to work with them to mentor that group to get further along in that hypothesis and then fast track them to grant submission. Carmen Trupec, Senior Director of Scientific Programs for RareX, Salvo La Rosa, Chief Scientific Officer of the Children's Tumor Foundation, and Andy Nguyen, Section Head of Medical Informatics for Genentech. Thank you all for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. RareX is a collaborative platform for global data sharing and analysis to accelerate treatments for rare disease. RareX is adapting proven technologies and partnering with leading experts to create a federated data analysis platform specifically designed by rare community leaders and scaled to support the diverse and expanding needs of rare disease research, development, and care. To learn more about RareX, Go to rare-x.org. This podcast is 